get this party started. And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three. Oh, one, two, three. The very third episode? Uh, you were listening to Culture Bop Presents, the official pop culture and media discussion podcast of Culture Bop. We've got a great episode for you today. Uh, this is episode three, as I just said. Uh, and I'm your host, the one and only Bebop man, Josh McMullen. And I am joined today by my co-host for this podcast, the one and only Gil Beasy, Gilbert Kitchens. And a special guest host, the first of hopefully many, uh, music producer extraordinaire, Mr. Sean O'Keefe Jr. How is it going today, fellas? It's going. We live in, man. We live in. Live in, live in. Uh, well, that's good to hear. Um, so I had brought in Sean uh, for a number of different reasons, but the, the main one being that... Uh, Sean knows music. Uh, I don't know much about music other than I know what I like. Um, and he is here to provide us with uh, some more, um, I suppose, uh, expertise, like uh, that sort of thing. A little um, bit of a different perspective, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because uh, Sean can tell you what a harmony is, and I don't know what that is. That's not true. I know what a harmony is, but he can tell you what a chord is just by hearing it. I can't do that. I can nerd um, out on some technical details. Lots of technical details. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you, you have actually uh, produced a couple of tracks for people, right? Am yeah. I remembering that correctly? Yeah, so there's one track where I was officially the producer that made it all the way to the release. Um, that is with my band, The Royal Turns. Um, that is available on Spotify. It's called A Little More. Um, that's my first and only start to finish uh, like executive producer credit. Um, I've kind of worked on tracks with other people before. Um, some of them haven't made it to release. Some of them I don't really have credit on. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of a... Uh, that, that, that is what I, I still do with music um, currently. I used to go out and tour and do stuff like that, but I'm taking a big break from that and kind of getting back to my roots and rethinking what I want to be doing with music. And so that's... Uh, yeah, that's where my musical journey is at right now. Hopefully there will be more to come. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, 
I've known Sean for a long while, and uh, he knows music like no one else that I know. So he's a great guest for this one. Um, but uh, Mr. Mr. Bees, what you been up to, man? Oh, nothing much. Same as usual. Uh, a lot of work. I've been starting a new diet, which has been interesting. Um, I'm kind of I'm experimenting at the start uh, between. Basically, I'm doing something called carnivore diet, which means you just eat meat. Uh, and I'm also mixing in fasting. So today I had breakfast. Um, I had steak for breakfast, and that's the first I've eaten since Thursday at lunch. <laughs> so, oh. uh, yeah, so I don't know. It's uh, it, it, I'm kind of taking it easy while I'm figuring all this out. So I haven't been doing too much, though. Okay, cool. Uh, have you have you had a chance to see uh, No Time to Die yet? I am going today. Oh, nice. Okay, very cool. Um, well, um, I have been watching horror movies as as uh, I am want to do. Saw Halloween Kills last night. Um, and love. You'll it. hear thoughts about that on uh, Hunting Pixels next week. Uh, not very good. <laughs> um. But yeah, uh, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, just watching horror movies. Still trying to work on this godforsaken video that I've been working on for what feels like forever now. Um, but that's enough about all of that. Let's go ahead and jump right into our main topic. And uh, this week we have our special musical-inspired guest here. Um, to bring that expertise and talk about music. And this week, we're going to talk about one of the greatest albums of the 80s, 1981's Moving Pictures by Rush. So uh, I will kick it to you first, Mr. Uh, Sean O'Keefe Jr. What is your first uh, recollection of being like introduced to this album? Huh. Uh, so... Uh when I was younger, hearing Tom Sawyer and Limelight on the radio would be like my first official exposure to content from this album. Um, mm. The first time that I got interested in actually sitting down and listening to the album uh, is kind of telling in, uh, as far as my uh, <laughs> as far as my exposure to Rush or Rush's library as a whole. Um, Rock Band 2, YYZ. YYZ uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on Rock Band 2 um, I was like wow okay so I mean I had been into Rush already I had been playing guitar and bass for a while leading up to the release of that game but I had never actually heard YYZ before so Rock Band 2 was the first time that I heard that track um, I was like wow okay so Rush has some instrumental stuff uh, that I can go check out and kind of start learning so uh, went and let's say, officially downloaded off of iTunes. <laughs> YYZ will say that's what happened. Um, started learning that track, thought it was awesome, and then uh, finally committed to sitting down and listening to the album all the way through around then. So I don't remember nice. when Rock Band 2 came out. Uh, like 2008, 2009, I think. Somewhere yeah. around there. Well, awesome, awesome. No, it wasn't Rock Band. That would have been Guitar Hero. Guitar Hero 2. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Should have been right. earlier than that. 2000. I think I think this album was in Rock Band eventually. Yeah. The whole album, but yeah, it was in. Uh, okay, 2006 Guitar was Guitar Hero 2. Yeah. Okay. So, probably my my freshman year in high school. 
would have been the first time I actually sat down and listened to the album all the way through. Oh, okay. Very cool. Uh, well, what about you, Mr. Mr. Beezy? Yeah, so when I was a kid, um, there were a couple songs I remember my dad would play in the car. My mom hates Rush. My dad's been a Rush fan since before I was born, but my mom can't stand him, so I never heard him a lot when the family was around. But, like, if I was in the car with my dad, he'd be playing them. Uh, just a couple of the songs anyways. But um, nothing from this album. But I remember uh, as I got older, my uh, dad decided we were going to go see them live. He was going to take me to a concert, and we were going to go see Rush. And so I was like, oh, well, I better, I better start listening to this. I better know all the songs, right? So I went and got all of his albums off. And honestly, I can't tell you when I first heard what from this album. It was all a blur because I was listening to, like, 15 albums at once. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really know. I do know, if I were to give a memory from this, it's that the combination of seeing them live that first time and then the third bass solo in YYZ... The little his little little flourish at the end there it was the moment i was like i gotta learn to play bass i gotta do this and i went out like a month later once i saved up the money and bought a bass and this was like freshman year of high school or something but uh yeah that's it's it's kind of one of those like i said i don't remember exactly the first time i sat down and listened to this album specifically but after listening to all this i was the rush guy in high school so oh nice yeah okay um well, for me, uh, I think my first exposure to this is probably everyone's first exposure to this album in particular, and that was Tom Sawyer. Um, I heard Tom Sawyer, uh, it was used in the Rob Zombie's Halloween from 2007, because um, I don't think I actually got Guitar Hero until, or, or yeah, Guitar Hero 2 until Christmas that year, so I didn't hear it on there, uh, YYZ. Um, but, uh, yeah, Tom Sawyer was, uh, used in the sequence where Ken Faree is, uh, bringing his truck into a, uh, car wash and then he gets murdered by Michael Myers. So, um, that was my first exposure to this, but I think, I actually don't think I'd listen to this album until like all the way through until much later, like probably, mm, probably about like 10 years ago, maybe, maybe a little sooner, but, um, it, it didn't come until, till much after that. Um, when I started like listening to albums as opposed to like singles and stuff like that. Um, I had like a real, I guess, revolution in how I listened to, uh, to music around that time. But, um, but yeah, this is a, it's a great album. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, but I think first, probably the best place to, uh, sort of start is to talk about, um, Rush and, uh, give a sort of brief history of, uh, them. So they were formed in 1968 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, and originally the only person from, uh, the kind of like known trio that was in the lineup was Alex Lifeson, the, uh, guitar player. And... Uh, Getty Lee actually joined at their second gig because the original bassist and vocalist dropped out. Um, and then, uh, Neil, uh, so I've heard this pronounced a different, a couple different ways. I always referred to him as Neil Pert. Um, Peart. but do you guys know how to pronounce his name? Um, I want to say it's 
it is Peart. Okay. But I, I don't know. <laughs> this okay. Is, this is one of those things that like everybody just kind of says it the way they says it, and I think I think Neil, you know, he didn't care particularly. He got used to people just saying it whichever way. Okay. Well, I'm just going to continue to call him Neil Pert. <laughs> uh, but he joined the band in 1974 following the departure of the founding drummer, uh, John Rutsey. Um, and that was kind of due to several different factors. Uh, I think he was going through some health issues. And then uh, I had also read that he wasn't as keen on playing the more complicated music that uh, Getty Lee and... Um, that Lifeson had um, been sort of like writing for the band at the time. Uh, so he left after, you know, uh, I think it was like right after they released their first album. Yeah. They, um, so he, uh, he had problems with touring. Uh, and he, yeah, had some, yeah. he, he did have some medical problems and he also kind of couldn't control himself on tour. So I think he was diabetic, but would also drink a lot, which was a problem combining those two things especially on tour with the the strain of that and so it was just a combination of things that they were like this guy can't where we're going it's not good for him if we keep him going with this um and so yeah it was right after the album basically before the tour they had to make a decision and so they did and then they auditioned some drummers and found neil yeah um and that, uh, so again, I think he worked on that first album, which was released in 74. And then they, right after that album was released, they auditioned, uh, Neil Peart or Peart or whatever. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, their first album was simply titled Rush. And between then and moving pictures in 1981, they released seven albums, uh, totaling roughly an album a year. Uh, I think they actually released two albums in 1976, um, like one at the beginning of the year and one at the end. But um, they really began seeing like significant growth in popularity, starting with 76's uh, 2112. Uh, and this kind of would, I think, start their transcendence up until moving pictures with each of the progressing albums becoming like bigger and bigger in Canada, the UK and the US. Um, so if you look at like their charts and everything, starting in 75, Caress of Steel, they started like experimenting more with like prog rock elements and they would continue sort of engaging with that in the song craft. But then with 2112, they hit their first sort of like major like milestone as a band. And then from there, it just kept growing and growing and growing. Um, but with the, uh, with the experimenting with the, the prog rock elements, as opposed to the sort of like more simple, like, uh, blues inspired stuff that they did with their, um, original, they, uh, actually leading into moving pictures intended to write stuff more focused and like um, told in like shorter amounts of time, but still keeping with the uh, the stuff that they had been leading into with the prog rock stuff. Um, and then finally, you know, we get to the album released February 12th, 1981, and it was pretty widely acclaimed, both critically and commercially. Uh, the song YYZ was nominated for a Grammy. Uh, the album actually peaked at number one in uh, Canadian album charts and number three on both the U.S. and U.K. charts. 
and is uh, right now um, certified five times platinum in the U.S. and four times in Canada. So uh, pretty, pretty big deal for them. Um, but uh, I think another thing that we should probably consider talking about is maybe the music of the era around it, because I think that really towards the end of the 70s and like going into the early 80s, uh, I, I think that like traditional rock was kind of on the downswing and there was a bunch of new stuff, you know, coming up. Um, mostly synth pop and new wave stuff. Uh, there was a little bit of punk in there as well, but mostly it was, uh, I, I, one of the big things I think was the MTV debut, uh, in 1981, um, which really kind of changed the way that music was, I think seen. Um, but, uh, do you guys have any thoughts, uh, around the music? I will get into it. But um, do you guys have any thoughts about, like, the time frame within which this album was released? The big thing that I always think of with the, the transition from the 70s into the 80s is the, the widespread adoption of synthesizers. Um, mm-hmm. That kind of goes with the whole synth pop thing. But, I mean, you start seeing it in all of these um, progressive rock bands and, um, you know, everything in between from pop rock all the way into the really experimental guys there well guys and girls they're all using synthesizers and in, in varying degrees and i mean this album is you see rush starting to to really pick that up here and i'm i'm not as well versed in the, the albums before this one so i'm sure there are some synthesizer elements before this one but i mean you start seeing them dabble and then kind of actually featuring synthesizer pretty heavily in a couple of tracks on this album so that's what i that's what i think of in the the 70s to 80s transition yeah rush was was very much they 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 were never afraid of incorporating current sounds it was never about chasing something it's just they kind of heard things they liked so i know one of the influences that was big on them when they wrote this album was the police um Mm. and some of those elements particularly in like uh now I'm getting everything mixed up. I think Vital Signs is kind of, kind of not ska, but you can, you can kind of hear a little bit of the police in there. Um, but yeah, they had used synthesizers all through, maybe not in the first album, but pretty much all through they had used them. But this is where they really, I feel, maybe the album before with Permanent Waves, but they really started to nail blending it all together into one one big cohesive sound. Uh, you know, it wasn't just here is the synthesizer section or here is, you know, the part without it, whatever. It's just it was one uh, cohesive sound that really, as the 80s went on, continued to grow with them until it got more and more and more synth until they eventually had to completely strip it out in the 90s. But um, OK, yeah, that's interesting. I when I was going through listening and, and taking notes, I I was noticing that there were. You know, there are, there are sections in this album where the synth is, like, way up front and you, you know it's there. But um, mm-hmm. as I was listening with my headphones, I was noticing that there are some spots where it's it's taking up some space. It's, it's serving a function, but it's not a spot where when I think back on the album, when I'm not listening to it, I wouldn't be able to say, yeah, there's, there's synthesizer in that section. Yeah, they had... Um... 
so I'm pretty sure he was using them back in the 70s, but Getty has these, they're called Taurus pedals, which yeah. is basically just a It's like a the giant, organ pedals. Yeah, it's like giant organ pedals that can run through a synth. So while he's playing the bass and singing, he can just hit a, a key with his foot, and it just adds a chord behind or just a tone behind and kind of fills out the sound. Um, and I, I, he definitely uses them a lot on this album. Um, but then, yeah, like, I mean, like, because you have one guy playing both the synth and the bass, you are going to have switch off between those two. You're never going to have them at the same time. But I, I just feel like as far as the songwriting goes, they really started to get a grip on, on p- making them all fit together. And it still feels like one flowing song. Whereas in the 20 minute songs of hemispheres or whatever, the music would kind of fade out and you would have a three minute section of just the synth with light guitar and kind of a building thing. And as they compress their songs down to, I don't know, from 20 minutes to like six, you know, still long for most people, but as they compressed it down, um, they really started to, to, to fit all of these pieces together. This is where their songwriting kind of stepped to the next level. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, it's funny that you mentioned the the synth stuff because I always think of of uh, Rush as like the the three man like like guitar bass and drums like I I don't ever really think about synth but yeah like even with uh, you know Tom Sawyer the like lead track like it's synth front and center at the very beginning of the song yeah it's yeah that I. I'm glad that you guys brought that up because even that I wasn't even, I guess, consciously aware of. Man, um, uh, definitely check out some videos of them playing live. Um, if you haven't spent a whole lot of time doing that, it's really fun to watch Getty playing uh, the Taurus pedals and he'll actually play like a, I don't know if he still plays a mini Moog or if it's just like a MIDI controller or what, but um, yeah. It, yeah, l- later it, on he just has a controller, like a big giant. 60 whatever key keyboard nice. there but oh yeah, yeah back, back in back in the 80s he had like four keyboards up there because each one was wired for different sounds and it was going between them all and he had the two sets of Taurus pedals with his yeah double neck bass and all this crap <laughs> he's so cool man <laughs> so so cool yeah uh well i mean speaking to the rise of the synth um you know and new wave uh there were some big things that came out of, of 81, uh, wham was formed. Pet shop boys were formed. Uh, tears for fears were formed that year. Um, the cure began finding success with their, I think it was their third album at this point. Uh, Duran Duran released their debut album. Uh, you know, tears for fears. They released the, uh, mad world single, I think either this year or like early 82, but they were formed. Uh, I mean, and then in the UK, Tainted Love and uh, Don't You Want Me from The Human League. Well, Tainted Love isn't The Human League, but those two songs uh, charted in the UK and just demolished the uh, the charts. Yeah, there we go. For like almost the entire year. I think uh, Don't You Want Me was up there for like 26 weeks straight. It's a badass so, song. Yeah. <laughs> I love that song. Uh, but, uh, like, Rise of Synth Pop was, was huge in 81. And then you look at, like, what Rock was doing. And I think that, like, this is kind of, 
I, I think it started in the late 70s with like you know uh, Ozzy and uh, Black Sabbath becoming really really big but like metal started becoming like the form of predominant rock um, like Metallica forms in 81 Iron Maiden really started finding their success here uh, I think it was the year before this Ozzy released Blizzard of Oz and then it was like the next year he releases uh, his second solo album you know Black Sabbath is still kicking it uh, if if I'm not mistaken uh, no Megadeth is, is a little bit later but um uh, Def Lebert is already doing stuff. I like metal starts becoming, I think the, what people traditionally think of as rock during this era. Um, especially in, in 81, whereas you get the stuff from the seventies, like Zeppelin sort of pink Floyd, those guys start going away and you get more stuff towards like the, the metal, the new wave, the, the synth pop, that sort of stuff happening. Um, but uh, I wanted to list off some notable albums. These are ones that uh, were like stuck in the charts for a while or like have significance. Um, Face Value from Phil Collins uh, came out this year. It was Collins' first solo album. Um, and he still worked with Genesis up into the 90s, I think. But um, this was his first uh, album. It had the the me mega successful single um, in the air tonight. Uh, you had the human league with dare again. That was the, the one that featured don't you want me huge, like abs absolutely huge record uh, sticks paradise theater. I actually don't think I've ever listened to this. Uh, I'm not a huge stick fan sticks fan, but I've listened to some other stuff. Uh, this one, for whatever reason, was in the charts for a really long time. Um, but, you know, whatever. Uh, the Rolling Stones released Tattoo You, um, which was kind of their first sort of foray into stuff that wasn't necessarily like blues and uh, like country inspired. Um, this had more of like, like I was saying earlier, more of the like... Uh, the sort of like new wave elements to it. Uh, they had some stuff in here that was kind of like, um, what's, uh, the, the reggae. There we go. They had like some reggae stuff in there, whatever, uh, really different album for them. Um, four from foreigner came out this year and stayed in the charts for a really, really long time. I think it was like 26 weeks or something like that. Um, I didn't write it down. I should have, but yeah, I stayed in there for a while. Then you got ghost in the machine, which was, uh, I think probably the police's best record. Um, if it's not this, you know, everyone loves synchronicity, right? But I, I really am a, a big fan of, uh, Zenyatta Mandata, but, uh, ghost in the machine is probably my favorite police record. Uh, Rick Springfield came out with working class dog, had the, mega successful single Jesse's girl um Stevie Nicks released her uh debut album or solo debut album Belladonna um yeah uh Escape from Journey came out this year and it had the uh the hits um 
Don't Stop Believing, and uh, what was the other big song off this album? Um, oh, man. Hang on. I got to look this up because there was another huge hit. Uh, Who's Crying Now, I think, was the other one. Um, but, yeah, big, big album for them. And then the uh, the final one I have written down here was Speak and Spell by Depeche Mode, which was actually their debut album. Um, again, this just kind of ties back into the synth pop stuff. But um, did you guys look into like any other albums that would have come out around this year or was that just me? No, not really. I, I don't. Some stuff stands out. It's the same with movies from the 80s. But like mm. on the whole, like I don't like 80s stuff. <laughs> don't like oh, 80s okay. music i don't like 80s movies i don't like i don't like a lot of the 80s stuff so like kind of what filters through and, and stands out to me so rush being one of those um but no i never i never thought to like dig into this for the, some some stuff from the year you hate the 80s why are we doing a podcast together again <laughs> for me it all kind of goes back like i said before to the synth thing you see this big bifurcation in the rock scene like the the people that are adopting the synth stuff end up being like the pop rock of the time and then like you said uh josh the uh the metal scene is kind of like the uh the counterculture in the rock scene at that point you got the guys that are you know purists and just keep the the standard rock instrumentation um so i don't really i wasn't a alive in the 80s <laughs> at all um but when when i look back and think about you know what what's happening in terms of the the big picture of what's going on with albums you have the the big successful pop chart guys and all those those albums that you listed where people are kind of going with that mainstream sound and then you have the <laughs> the um, the purest rockers that are kind of doing their own thing and not really getting the radio success. Mm, yeah, yeah. Not pop radio. Not yeah, not pop radio. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I think from here it probably time to start digging into the album. Um, so, uh, really the um, the the core members here were the the ones who were. Uh, responsible for pretty much everything. You had Getty Lee on bass keyboards. You had the pedals. Uh, you had Alex Liveson with the guitars and then Neil Peart with, you know, percussion, obviously. And I was looking into the sort of making of this album and like looked at all of the stuff that he played. And it's like insane. I've seen his setup in like from like live shows where like he's just got like a whole like almost like circle around him with like all kinds of shit and rotates. Yeah. Yeah. And his, like the amount of stuff that he did, uh, with, um, with percussion in this is just insane. Like it was listed. Like I got it right here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten different things that, that pert was in charge of. um, kind of crazy yeah but, they uh, weren't afraid of using auxiliary percussion stuff he wasn't just a drum set player he was a percussionist yeah so i think we can probably get into this uh with with, with these guys uh specifically but 
there has been an argument uh, about like obviously like greatest drummers of all time and, and stuff like that. And I am one of the people who like, I don't necessarily care for like speed. Like there are people who are like, Oh, metal drummers, blah, blah, blah. And that's fine. Whatever. But like, I listen to Neil Peart's drums and I think to myself, this dude just nailed it. Like no one is better than him in my mind. Uh, do you guys have any sort of like feelings on that? Neil is, Okay, so there's a lot of people who saw the Beatles on TV in the 60s. I can't remember the name of the show, but it's famous appearance on TV in Uh, America. The Ed Sullivan show? Ed Sullivan, that's it. And Neil Peart was one of them. But there's so many people that saw that show, and they dialed in on someone and thought, I got to be like George, I got to play guitar, or I'm going to be like Paul and play bass. But Neil is one of the ones who looked at Ringo and was like, man, drums are so cool, I got to do that. Well... Years later, there's so many players now and in the 90s and 2000s that if you ask them why they started playing drums, it was because of Neil Peart. Yeah. Uh, you know, one that springs to mind is Mike Portnoy, previously of Dream Theater, um, started playing because of Neil Peart. Um, I mean, the list could go on. There's just so many. He's inspired so many people to just pick up a pair of sticks and play. I was in the drum line in high school and middle school because I wanted to be like Neil and learn how to hit the drums. Um, he's just so influential. And I think what makes him so great is kind of what you said. He's not overcomplicated, but he's not afraid of complex parts. He just plays the right part for the thing and is so expressive as he does it. He really made the drums stop being a timekeeping tool strictly and start being truly musical. I mean, you had guys before him, you have the John Bonhams and the, um, oh, now I'm blinking on the who what's his name oh, keith moon uh, you have the keith, keith moon yeah yeah and they were musical but neil peart was able to bring the complexity up while still keeping the heart in it and still not just being like now where you just have like oh i can play 64th notes at whatever on my feet on my left foot only while my uh, my right foot is playing the hi-hat at 120 whatever you know it's just like now it's just over the top and it's just show off He was never showing off. He was writing the parts he wanted to play and challenging himself. And I think that really comes through in the music all the way through. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, with like, you, you mentioned John Bonham. I, I love the stuff that he was doing with Zeppelin. Like uh, Moby Dick from Led yeah. Zeppelin 2 is just like, it's insane listening to that because that dude just like fucking destroys his drum set for like you know i think it that song is like seven minutes long and it like almost like five minutes of that song are just him playing the drums it's it's yeah. insane um but you know i i listened to to this album in particular or any rush album really um and it's just it's so different like it just really is like completely different um, and I don't think that that's to kind of step on the, on the, um, the toes of, uh, the other two members like Getty Lee is, I think has one of the most distinctive voices in rock. Uh, it's just so different and what he does with keyboards and, and even the bass, like, uh, Tom Sawyer has got, I think two bass solos. Um, or maybe it's YYZ I'm thinking of, but 
like there's I, I definitely don't want to step on the toes of those other guys either. Um, you're, but, uh, so, so you're touching on what my perspective on the the whole thing is here. Um, so Rush wouldn't be Rush without you know the the three guys in Rush. Mm-hmm. Um, if you put a different bass player there or a different vocalist there, it, it wouldn't be Rush. It would be a different thing. Um, Neil brings or brought a lot of different stuff to the table, not just in terms of you know the the way that he played the drums or the way he composed. He was also the lyricist or the main lyricist. He contributed a lot to the orchestration and arrangement of of the songs. Um, but um, you you can apply that to the other bands as well. Like Pink Floyd wouldn't have been the same with a different drummer. Nick Mason wasn't a guy that went off and um, tried to make the drums a, a feature of the band. He was one of the guys that just kind of sat back and did his job, and he did his job really, really, really well. That's why Pink Floyd has one of the best rhythm sections in a, a white boy rock band of all time, in my opinion. The Chili Peppers wouldn't be the same uh, without Chad Smith, right? If we had, uh, if Dave Grohl had been born earlier and had been in the Chili Peppers, it'd be a completely different band. Um, Nirvana wouldn't be the same if we had had somebody other than Dave Grohl playing the drums, right? The Carpenters mm-hmm. wouldn't be the same if we didn't have Karen Carpenter playing the drums. Um, all these people have their influences that they've, you know, they studied, they've internalized, and then, uh, you know, their their personality, their life experience, and you know, the way they view their instrument or instruments or music as a concept uh, dictates where where their artistry goes. How how they take it to the next level, you know, because all these people spent all this time studying their influences and they're incredible musicians, they're incredible people, they're going to take it to the next level. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, what what direction they take it in. Um, different, but same, same, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was looking through uh, the um, the liner notes here. Uh, they had another uh, studio musician for this uh, with Hugh. I, I believe this is Syme. I think that's how you say his last name. Um, but he was the uh, he provided synthesizer for uh, Witch Hunt, um, which we'll get into later. But it might be one of my favorite Rush songs like ever. I really, really love that song. Um, but he also contributed to the uh, the actual um artwork on uh the cover of the album and on the on the back of the album which and a few uh, other ones as well yeah he's yeah in, he uh he did yeah, he's the, in several rush albums do what now uh for album art he's done pretty much all the rush albums since uh and plenty of other bands oh okay i didn't i didn't know that it's a uh, huge, huge list of stuff he's done very cool. Yeah, I I didn't know that. I looked into him uh, only in regards to what he had done with um, uh, this album, but that's that's cool. I didn't know that. Very cool. Um, I so I put these guys down because I thought that maybe uh, you guys could speak to more of this because I don't really know what any of this kind of goes into. But there was a production team, um, Terry Brown and Rush 
they both produced the band. Then there were a couple engineers and a couple people who did the mastering. And I, when it comes to music, I don't really know what all goes into that. Um, I mean, maybe you guys could speak more authoritatively to it, but I, at the very least, wanted to mention these people. Uh, Paul Northfield and Robbie Whalen uh, were the engineers on the album, and then Bob uh, Ludwig and Peter Jensen um, were the masterers, I guess. So um, in terms of engineering, that's your guys that are actually sitting down in the studio with the band, uh, making the recordings happen. They're placing microphones. They're getting all of the outboard gear set up. Okay. Um, getting the instruments into the mixing board and onto the tape. Um, I, you also have mix engineers. I don't know if these guys were the the mixers as well. But you know, once you've got all of the tracks on tape, um, whether you're recording the band live or multi-tracking, so like going back over the top and overdubbing synth parts, um, all that stuff. Somebody on the back end has to take all that tape and um, you know get the the volume levels right. Um, you know, add compression or add effects and post, um, all that kind of stuff. And then once they've got a mix that they like, they send it off to a mastering engineer who's going to, you know, do final touches, do some, like, EQ and compression on the final track. Um, kind of sometimes it they're all, Yep, exactly. Tie it up, make sure the volume level's right for radio, um, prepare all the different tracks, make sure the levels are, you know, comparable between the different tracks to, you know, print to, I guess, vinyl at the time, or even like sending uh, tape masters out to people. I don't really know if people I, were still buying, you know, tape reel-to-reel back then. Yeah, I think that this one was still released on vinyl and tape, but it uh, was actually released as a CD in 84 um, okay. l- later. And but it's, it's I, worth I think noting when it was initially released, it was a vinyl and tape. It's worth noting that they, this is actually the first album they recorded, um, and it was Terry Brown's first album produced on digital, uh, mm-hmm. using an early 48-track digital. Like, It kind of records the tape and then takes that immediately to digital so that you're not losing, because prior to digital, basically, you would, for multi-tracking and all that, you would literally just be recording over the same thing, and you would have to, as you're tracking, it would have to be re- go back and played a lot. Um, so essentially you have one master tape that would, you would, you would record, um, your different parts and then record those to the tape. And so like, if you were recording a guitar solo, you're listening to the master over and over again, which wears it out. So from the start of the recording to the end of the recording, you end up with degraded quality, which some people now like, and they prefer that sound more. And I don't know, it's a whole thing. Um, and obviously there's plenty of albums that sound amazing before this, but, uh, I actually listened to an interview they were talking about this album and how they actually they kind of did both where they recorded they used the digital machine but they also did it to tape just kind of out of curiosity and at the end they preferred the digital and so they went with that um but yeah so just as an interesting thing i mean this was kind of the start with the 80s too of the rise of digital recording even though mm-hmm. back then what it would be compared to what it is now is completely foreign almost because you're still using tape back then but uh yeah that's just worth noting that is really really interesting um i like to dig into 
um, recording technology a lot. All of that is really, really interesting. Um, yeah, I hadn't even realized that that they were recording on a digital machine then. Yeah. Very interesting. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you guys are talking about stuff that's way over my head, but yeah, super cool. Um, so uh, you had actually brought this up uh, earlier, Gilbeezy, but this was kind of um, a sort of difference, uh, at least a little bit, in this album as compared to the, at the very least, the like three or four that came before this album, the um, this way that they wrote the songs and the, the sort of instrumentation behind it. Uh, do you want to dig a little bit more into that? Um, well, I would say that this, this kind of, this is a furthering of what they started on the previous album, Permanent Waves. It, it has the shorter song structure. It's got all the elements there. And Permanent Waves is a fucking great album, too. But uh, like I said, this is where it all kind of started to gel. Um, and they really made a concerted effort to take all the things they had done before and compress them a bit. Instead of having a million ideas and trying to put them into a 20-minute you know, magnum opus, trying to shorten it down to you know, again, like a six minute song, which is still long for radio, but it, it's rush. You're going to get as short as you can. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the best examples to compare is red Barchetta mm-hmm. because the themes of that song and kind of what it's about, uh, in the narrative, it really is a similar kind of somewhat thing to a song like 2112 in that there's this forbidden technology that someone dis- d- d- you know discovers and there's freedom in it and they're just uh, being chased down by the 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 police and all this to to take away this you know creative expression from them and all that but instead of being a 20 minute song with like five parts and having like a a ballad in the middle and like all this stuff it's a single song and that really was an experiment for them to try to you know like I said take that storytelling and take that songwriting and try to be more concise with it not 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 to be more radio friendly or anything like that just to try to you know say what you're saying in fewer words if that makes sense mm-hmm. um, a little bit more poetic yeah exactly rambling yeah not that i would call their long stuff rambling but no not yeah they're making they're making a concerted effort to yeah yeah exactly same thing less words it's a good way to put it yeah, um, I think so. I I've only dipped into a couple of albums before this. Most of the stuff I I've listened to from Rush is from Moving Pictures onward, and uh, I think this is one of the last albums where they have super long songs. Uh, I think it's like after this they started getting into more the the radio friendly sort of like four minute mark. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's nothing in here that's quite as uh, absurdly long as like the 2112 suite from 2112 or um, uh, I think it was on uh, was it Hemispheres they had like an almost 20 minute long set that was actually the first half of that album yeah, um, and, and that's part two of a 20 minute song on another album oh <laughs> so, so yeah uh, yeah completely different like um, oh yeah Cygnus X1 yeah <laughs> Lord. Yeah, they did a lot of I mean they had like uh 
Lavillo Strangiato, which was like a 11 minute or 10 or 11 minute uh, um, instrumental. 2112, you know, you mentioned Cygnus and Hemispheres and, and all that. Like, yeah, Bitor and the Snow Dog is like a 10 minute, it's a ridiculous song. Um, yeah, they definitely had a lot of jams in there. And even like, uh, if you, it's pretty funny because you listen to the original Rush album, we talked about how that was a different drummer. Well, then you can listen to immediately after that recordings of when they went on tour with Neil. And not only are like the song Working Man, it's not only longer now, just generally and more jammy and longer guitar solo and all that. There's like a five minute drum solo in the middle and <laughs> they really got into long songs. This was not a short band. I mean, even at the end, they were playing three hour shows consistently. <laughs> like That's fucking crazy. <laughs> this is not a short band. <laughs> Yeah, they were doing shows all the way up until like a couple of years ago, right? Like 2018. Yeah. So these dudes are like in their like what 70s playing three hour shows. Like that's fucking nuts. They were in their 60s. Calm down. Early 60s. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. My my bad. My bad. Um. But yeah, I mean, it's funny because like we're talking about how short these songs are, but Camera Eye is still 10 minutes. Like it's. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, even Y Y Z is is almost seven minutes long, right? I mean, it's like four and a half minutes. But it feels it goes oh. through so many different sections and changes you're, and stuff. It it feels uh, it feels longer. Yeah, you're right. I, Red Barchetta's I, uh, six minutes, a little over six minutes. That's what it is. Yeah, but so damn, that's what that's I'm crazy. saying. Even when they tried to get shorter, it's not exactly short. It's just it's technically shorter, but it's still not like radio four minute, three minute songs. Yeah. Yeah. Even like even though the length of the tracks are getting shorter, like the, the density of the content is, um, it's a lot. They, they do a lot in a short amount of time when it is short. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I think the, the next thing we should get into, uh, Sean, you mentioned this earlier, but, uh, Pert kind of came in and, sort of wrote the lyrics for a lot of the songs that, uh, well, he wrote the lyrics for the songs, like once he came on board. Right. Yep. Um, and obviously once he came on board, rush started sort of like taking off more successfully. Um, but was there anything that stood out to you in terms of like the lyrics on this album? Because I think for me, I look into, uh, Oh, what in the world is going on here? I just, sorry, I had a weird thing pop up on the internet. Um, some weird audio thing. Okay, anyway, um, I look at uh, Pert's uh, songwriting, like with the lyrics in particular, and I feel like all of his uh, songs are almost like mini stories. Um, like f for instance, red Barchetta in this is kind of about like a, um, like a, a race, like a, uh, like a car race, but it's like set in like this weird, like sort Dystopian of like in future kind of deal. Yeah. 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 And, um, I, you know, you look at Tom Sawyer and it's very clearly inspired by, you know, Tom Sawyer, <laughs> But uh, was there anything that really stood out to you about the the sort of like narratives that uh, <laughs> that are sung about in this album? Yeah, let me piss in your Cheerios. So I uh, 
I am the worst about listening to lyrics and songs, so the answer is no. Nothing stood out to me because okay. <laughs> I almost never pay attention to lyrics and songs. I'm like really fascinated by instrumentation and orchestration, and um, yeah, usually it, it takes me hours and hours and hours of digging into a song before I start even thinking about lyrics, so uh, no, I, feel I don't. <laughs> I kind of I kind of do the same thing except like I I listen to like the the sort of like melodies and the harmonies and stuff like that so like I'll like hum like lyrics to a song without actually knowing what's being said and I have to look at it like later to to kind of like get get what's being said right um but uh well since, so Gilbeasy might have some some more insight there. Yeah, I may that's, have that's heard this album like 500 times by now. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, seen it live a couple times. So yeah. Uh, well, one thing worth noting is that um, there was this guy, this poet, Canadian poet named Pi Dubois, um, P Y E Dubois, uh, and he he had written some lyrics for another Canadian band, Max Webster, um, and some others. I, I'm not familiar with the other stuff really, but uh, he got to know Rush, and he actually wrote a poem that became Tom Sawyer. That was actually just a partnership there. So he's credited on that song, um, even though Neil took that poem and kind of converted it more lyrically into a song that would fit. Um, so that's kind of where that song came about. Uh, but yeah, I mean, again, I think Red Barchetta is the same themes as 2112 and some of their other previous songs, just kind of compressed and... Uh, I, I think that one was written because uh, Neil's really big into cars, or he was uh, huge into cars, particularly at that time, collecting cars and all that. And it was a there was a this magazine called was it Tracking Car? It still exists. I can't remember, but something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. And there was a short story in there about something kind of similar. And so he had read that and liked it, and so he wrote a song kind of in that vein. Um, the camera eye is a comparison of. New York City and London, um, two cities Neil lived in in the years prior to writing that song. I think he lived in London still at the time of uh, moving pictures. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was just comparing those two cities and, and the pace of them and how the people act and, you know, kind of just the nature of those two things and just kind of pondering on that, pontificating on that, whatever. Um, but, yeah, I think something worth noting, if we go back just a second to who these guys are, is this is not like a party and drugs and sex rock band like these guys were pretty grounded early on they were pretty calm and whatever you know however you want to phrase that early on they were all married um relatively early in the band i believe they were all married by the time this album came out and they were just kind of regular guys like they would finish a show and go back to the hotel and watch a baseball game that's that was their they didn't go party or anything like that they would just go watch baseball neil would read a lot he that's where that's why he kind of started writing lyrics is because he just read a lot a lot of their early work was inspired by ayn rand they wrote anthem based on that 2112 is also based on anthem like so he's he's a very quiet guy who just kind of keeps to himself and reads a lot and has a lot to say about things and it comes out through the lyrics and i think that going through the 80s you get a lot more of personal neil uh for lack of a better way to say that in the lyrics um on this album in particular uh you know limelight was written about 
basically the limelight struggling with, you know, I'm famous because I'm successful, but I also don't want this fame to an extent. Like, I don't want people just crowding me and walking up to me like this, you know, the the line in that song, I can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. Like, I, I can't pretend that this crowd and this these mobs that are trying to follow me backstage and all this stuff, I can't pretend that I've been looking forward to this my whole life. You know, there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, Witch Hunt is about censorship uh, and just kind of the, the fear that, you know, obviously it's hearkening back to the Salem Witch Trials and all that, but it's just, you know, hunting down ideas that are foreign to the mainstream um, and how people try to shut them down when they should really be embraced and we should try to learn from these things. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot going on in this album. I don't, I, I think some of the ideas he expresses here, he expresses better in future albums, but it's, I don't know. Again, I've, I've heard this album a million times, so I know every word. Um, it's, it's hard to, to, to pick one that stands out or pick a line, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... So I, I think uh, one thing that I think that I got, I mean, this is how I felt like when I looked into the lyrics um, like last night and earlier this morning and uh, and kind of speaking, I think, to what you said. I one thing I, I feel like all of the narratives in this album in particular um, kind of speak to is is a thematic sort of tying together uh or they're all kind of tied together thematically through what I interpret as freedom. Like uh, Tom Sawyer is, is about, you know, being, I, I would, I would say being like just out in nature, like uh, kind of like on your own, uh, you know, riding out the day's events through the river or whatever he says in that song. Um, and Red Barchetta literally is talking about a guy, you know, in a car chase being like hunted down by like law enforcement or you take, you know, like you were just talking about Limelight. You you look at that and like he wants to like be able to c create his music, not necessarily uh, have all of the the weird uh, like um I don't know what you would call it. Uh, like uh, I, the, the stuff that comes along with fame. Right. Um, or you look at like the camera and he's, you know, you said he's comparing, you know, New York city and, uh, and London. And like, you look at what he's saying about like how like compressed everything is in New York, like, uh, the angular mass of New Yorkers, right? And their faces closed tight, like grim, forbidding, like that sort of stuff. And like, then you look at the stuff where he's talking about London and it's like steeped in history, but like it, everything is like different. He's not talking about people. He's talking about like mist in the street or, you know, um, like he says wide angle, like, and to me that like speaks to like more freedom obviously you get into witch hunt and like it like what what is that about it's about someone being hunted down like unfairly right or uh i think vital signs is maybe the only one that doesn't quite fit into there but even that at the end is like everybody's got to elevate from the norm and like that's i i feel like even speaking a little bit differently to um 
to that sort of theme. Uh, but was there anything that you picked up in there, like thematically tying these tracks together? Uh, honestly, I think it's a good collection of songs. I don't. I, I think it's interesting how you kind of noted the the idea of a you know pacing, I guess, as a theme throughout it. Um, and then uh, you know it actually does kind of tie into vital signs at the end because it's you know obviously a human being's vital signs, your heart rate, and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. but the song is basically talking about how you've got to, like, you just keep going at a certain pace. Eventually you're going to fry out and you kind of got to do what you need to do. And if you need to pause, pause, if you need to, to, you know, be around a certain person to kind of regenerate, do that. You got to kind of do what you got to do so you don't burn out. And that's kind of what life is almost in a way is just trying to not burn out to some extent. So there definitely mm-hmm. is a lot of these ideas that were on his mind at the time. I, I definitely, you know. I wouldn't call this a concept album by any means, but, um, yeah, I guess, I guess it's, it's kind of, you know, a lot of the stuff was on his mind as they were going, especially if you look at their schedule in this time. And like you said, they they put out at least one album a year. They were constantly touring all the way through. Mm -hmm. Um, and then after this album and as you know, as it took off and they could have just toured, they could have just kept doing the same thing, but they kind of, the pacing of the album starts to slow down. Um, they're touring, uh, you know, originally it was like day after day after day after day. And I, I want to say it was not long after this album that they started taking approach of having a day off between shows mm-hmm. um, just to just to not burn out. Um, you know, you'd get things like they would play a show and then Alex the next day he'd go to the next city and find a golf course and just golf or. Uh, Neil would drive between shows, especially later on in the '90s and stuff. He would start. He would ride his motorcycle between tour dates and try to track out a, like a not just a highway route, but a, a backwoods route. And I think this was kind of the beginning of them starting to think about ways to not implode with all that they were doing. Especially as I said, they're all trying to now balance families on top of all of this. Um, so yeah, kind of mentioning that, I de- you can see a lot of that theme in there. Um, Red Barchetta, there is the chase element, but it, it's also a, a. I think that one's more, you know, talking about freedom, just freedom in general, because the the whole concept is that engine cars, old school engine cars, are illegal. They're outlawed. Um, you know, there there's hovercraft or something in this whatever future, but. He just, this guy just finds simple pleasure in revving an engine and driving through old roads. Um, and just this natural, you know, obviously a car is not natural, but it's this kind of primal energy that he's getting that's trying to be, uh, what, what's the word, not compressed, but I'm, I'm blanking on the word here. It's trying to be put down by the man, you know, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of fighting against that. Um so yeah, I, I can definitely see a theme um, when you look at where they were at and you know all this stuff. And I mean, heck, even YYZ—that's the Toronto airport thing because they were flying around so much. So you know, uh, they were just touring constantly and they're constantly flying in and out of this airport. They wrote a song about it. But um, uh, yeah, I probably—if if, if anything, it was just kind of you know, kind of how do I manage this lifestyle with not becoming a wreck i guess yeah yeah uh 
well, I, I mean, I think we kind of uh, we kind of got into this a little bit, but I think maybe we should uh, finish this up with um, before we get into our final thoughts, uh, kind of a song by song breakdown. Um, we'll look into it. Uh, I think we'll probably look into this less about the lyrics and more so about like the the song craft here. But uh, let's go ahead and start with Tom Sawyer, um, and I, I'll start again by saying that I think that. Uh, this is a great introduction song for Rush. Like if, if you've ever wanted to like get into Rush, but like you've heard, you know, how complicated they can be and stuff like that. I think that Tom Sawyer is like a perfect entry point because it is like a condensed version of kind of what they do best, but like within like a pop structure, like there's a bunch of stuff going on in this song, but it's like, comprehensible if that makes sense uh i don't know how do you how do you guys feel this is okay like uh this is a song that like i don't think since it has come out that they haven't played it at a show this is their hit this is their big one this is Mm -hmm. this is the song that goes with rush um and it's one of those songs that, okay, so I've seen them live six times. And oh, if you shit. were to ask me after, like, the second time at any of those shows, before the show, would you rather they play Tom Sawyer, or would you rather they replace that with something else? I would have said replace it with something else before the show. But then there is just nothing in the world like being at a Rush show, and that first just synth chord hits, and the whole just 15,000 nerds are air drumming with Neil Peart all at once. It is the coolest thing in the world and they nailed it every time. Uh, and they've talked about how like you'd think you'd get tired of it, but it's always, there's always a challenge in getting it right and just nailing it every night. And they love playing it and the crowd loves playing it. And the crowd's just electric when that song comes on. And there's just something about that song that just resonates with so many people. Um, it's always good. And and Getty fucking kills the bass in this one, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What about you, Sean? Yeah, man. I mean, it's just one of those. It's one of those big hits that deserves to be a big hit. Yeah. Um, like Gil was saying, I mean, it it just slaps when when they play it live. It's it's massive. Everybody's stoked to hear it. They do crush it every time they play it. Um, it's got so many iconic parts in it that are memorable. Um, a, a lot of their stuff can be kind of uh, weird, like metrically, like it's not all just 4-4 four, four standard rock beat kind of stuff. This one also isn't that. Um, I mean, it's got that weird like 7-8 section, the like you were talking about before, Josh, the the synth lick, like the, the big synth lead part, isn't um, that's not in four four, but I think the rest of the song when they're actually, you know, like the the verse chorus sections are all like just four four rock and roll. Um, mm-hmm. It. <laughs> It deserves to be the opening track. It deserves to be a hit. It deserves to be played at every show. It 
it's just a massive fucking song. It's it's one of those perfect rock tracks. Yeah, I to- I totally agree with that. This is if I mean I'll say it again. If if you want to get in a rush, this is the song to do it because the song is is uh, virtually perfect. I don't I don't have a, a problem with anything in this song at all. It it all just like works. It all just comes together. It's I don't know. It's it's wonderful. Um. Uh, but following following Tom Sawyer uh, is Red Barchetta, uh, and this is a song that I don't particularly remember from this album. Weirdly enough, uh, until I started like listening to it uh, to get prepared for this, it just was something that I didn't. I always thought that this came later, but um, I don't. I, what are you guys' thoughts? Or, or I'll start with you, Sean. What do you What do you think about Red Barchetta? So. This one still tricks me sometimes. Um, at the beginning, it sounds like it's going to be a ballad, <laughs> and um, yeah, they yeah. get they get through that first verse uh, all the way up to the to far outside the wire where my white haired uncle waits um, line. Uh, the band kind of starts to build, and then right after that line, they go into this uh, kind of instrumental section, a really short instrumental section to lead up to the pre-chorus and the chorus, where the band just starts. You know, they've got this riff that they're playing the the drums are wide open uh playing like a regular rock backbeat kind of deal and you're like oh okay no this isn't this isn't a ballad this is uh yeah this is another big ass rock track um but yeah i'm kind of in the same boat as you this wasn't one of the memorable tracks for me back when i was first listening to this album um well the first few times i was listening to the album um but this drummer that I used to play with, his name's uh, Thomas Branch, really, really great drummer. Um, this is one of his favorite Rush tracks. Um, and, you know, when we would play together, we, I don't want to say we would nerd out on Rush together because I wasn't a, a big Rush fan. Um, but, you know, I, I had studied them a little bit and, and had learned bass parts to a lot of a lot of tracks so when we would be like doing sound checks or like hanging out at rehearsals uh we would warm up playing rush tracks and he was like hey why don't you spend some time learning red barchetta um then we'll start working that one in so i actually sat down and spent a bunch of time learning this track because of thomas and now this is actually my favorite track on this album oh nice okay so, so it's got a cool thing I expected. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it's got a cool bass solo at the beginning and the end that bookends it. You know, it starts out with the guitar playing this harmonic lick, which is really cool. Uh, drums are just kind of accompanying at the beginning, uh, setting the pace rhythmically, and Getty's playing a bass solo. And then at the end of the song, that that bookend um, is the same thing, the same guitar harmonic lick, but the bass solo is a little bit more involved and Neil actually goes off on the drums a little bit. So, yeah, favorite track on the album. Very cool. What about you, Gilbeasy? Oh, this song fucking slaps. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. Again, just, it's just the, 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 this is, so here's where I come out as a real Rush nerd. In high school, I was in a Rush cover band. Um, oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> and Hell this, yeah. This song is just so fun to jam to. I don't 
really care how much fun it is to listen to. I mean, I have a blast with it, but it's just, you don't even care what the crowd is doing, if you're playing or anything. It's just, it's just so much fun. Um, and yeah, I don't know, I don't know what else to say apart from it just fucking slaps. Like, it's, I'm not, not going to go into a theory breakdown or anything, but yeah it's uh it's yeah I just love well i i totally will because like i was saying before that lick like once the the full band comes in and they're playing like straight up rock instrumentation the unison lick that alex and getty are playing during i guess the pre-chorus kind of deal um it slaps it hits so hard you just got neil playing straight four to the floor drums well not really four to the floor because he's going crazy with his kick but yeah they've they've got that one uh lick that getty and alex are playing in unison that's just like straight awesome simple but hard-hitting rock lick yeah i the one thing that you said that really i i didn't think about this at all but like the the sort of like verse does like and the beginning of the song it really does sound like almost like a ballad like a rock ballad and then you get to the chorus and it's just a straight up just like fucking like balls to the wall rock track it's it yeah um again that's something i hadn't even really thought this is and it builds too like and mm -hmm. and it matches the 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 story that they're telling too i mean he's the main character is getting out of the city the track is calm. He meets up with his uncle. The The dynamic level steps up. He gets in the car and cranks it. The dynamic level steps up again. And then he's out tearing through the countryside in this fucking muscle car. Uh, the dynamic level steps up again, and we get this sick guitar solo. Like This song is composed very, very well. Instrumentation to match the lyrics is... Uh, off the charts on this one. And then you get a great uh, Getty solo at the end, too, just to fade out the track. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, following up Red Barchetta's YYZ, uh, which is probably the second most popular song off this album. Um, I love this song. Uh, it... This is another one that just fucking slaps. I, I think, like, it starts off with the... I, I don't... I Probably Triangle... Um, I, I think it's something, I don't know what it is, but then yeah. like, it's just like pert and like that guitar lick and it's just fucking going. And like, I, I love this song. It's, it's awesome. So um, fun fact, since you said that, um, there is a sound in the, um, like a verse chorus. I don't know what you call any of the parts of this. It's an instrumental. Um, but there is a sound that sounds like a slap like a little little sound effect throughout the song and it's literally <laughs> neil put on a glove and slapped a block of wood and they recorded it and that's <laughs> that's the sound there's like a slap sound a few times through the song yeah i've that's always awesome. wondered what that was because there's like an orchestral thing it's like two pieces of wood that are on a hinge and you just slap them together to make that sound but it doesn't sound exactly like that so i've always yeah, wondered no, where they he, got he's, that he's that just from. hitting the board that's it that's so cool yeah, uh, the only thing that um, I had to say about this other than that, because, again, I'm not musically literate, um, is uh, I read that the uh, the rhythm is actually uh, the, the rhythm th for this song is 
YYZ in Morse code. It's like a five four time signature or something like that. Yep. That that yeah, intro but, on the on the. Uh, triangle intro on the triangle thing and symbol or whatever it is combo uh that is yeah that's morse code for yyz yep oh that's and super the, cool the melody the main or whatever the intro riff carries on from that okay cool and um for those who don't know they're based out of toronto mostly so it's just their home airport essentially yyz oh yeah the airport code yeah 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 well, and then it uh has features for everybody in it you know you've got getty and neil trading solos leading up to the big awesome guitar solo that's really iconic that everybody is familiar with really really good guitar solo kind of a theme throughout this album good guitar <laughs> solos i guess throughout their entire library yeah the, the music never takes a dip at all at all um well, uh, following that up is Limelight, uh, which um, I really like this song, uh, but it's, I think, so something about it feels like ultra familiar to me uh, at, at, at the very least at the beginning. Like, I almost feel like the guitar lick at the beginning of the song is stolen from something else. Um take that back <laughs> yeah <laughs> i i don't it sounds like ultra familiar to me uh and maybe it's like i've just heard limelight like on the radio a bunch but like this song feels like a almost like a cozy blanket like it it feels like something i i just like like comfort food almost like it feels like i have heard this song a, a billion times before so before i was like really into music. I didn't, I didn't start like actually studying music until I guess the end of being in middle school, probably around eighth grade. Um, I had heard Limelight all throughout my childhood on the radio. I, to this day, I swear Limelight is the Rush song I've heard the most on the radio. Um, and I didn't, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I, I didn't really start studying Rush until I was in, I guess, high school, like ninth or 10th grade, something like that. I would have sworn up and down up until I realized that this was a Rush song, that this was by some Southern rock band. Just yeah, be, same, Just right? because of that guitar lick. Um, like, it, it's... That is one of the coolest guitar riffs that has come out of Rush, in my opinion. Like, just in terms of... I don't know. There, there's a lot about it that I like. It's simple, but it's good. Like, a lot of stuff that I like in music is the stuff that says the most by doing the least. Um, it's a poetic guitar riff. Um, and then the way Neil comes in, like that, that drum lick that he plays to to start his entrance into the song is is really really sick yeah yeah uh well uh what, what do you think bc uh it's funny that you said it kind of feels like a warm blanket because if you look up the music video for it which back then music video was just the band playing the, the song it wasn't really yeah. you know <laughs> yeah. but it's literally them in the studio it's less studio it's a famous 
former Canadian studio. Um, it's, it's no longer, it's, it was abandoned. It's sad, but, um, yeah, it's just them in the studio playing it. And like, there's this big, these big windows in the tracking room. Um, and it's just woods and snow and, and deer. And <laughs> it's so mm-hmm. peaceful. And they're in this nice warm studio. And, uh, so yeah, it's funny. You said that about it feeling like a warm blanket. Um, but yeah, I don't know. This this is the first song that for me on bass, like I started playing because of Getty, because kind of because I was an idiot too. Because I played Guitar Hero and everybody, if if you sucked at the game, everybody made you play bass. So I thought, oh man, if bass <laughs> is easy and I can play like that guy, I want to do that. Um, which turns out bass is not easy. Um, but you know, I kept limiting myself in terms of like what I could learn. Because I was like, oh, well, I'm not good enough to play Russia. I'm not good enough. But then I joined this band, and the one song, you know, it was a high school band. They only had, like, one song. So the one song they knew was Limelight, and so I had to learn it. And so I sat there, and I pulled up the tab or whatever, and I just sat there and learned this song. And it gave me a huge confidence boost early on. And I was like, oh, I can play this. Oh, this is cool. And so I started learning a bunch of other Rush songs and stuff. But So this one kind of holds a special place in my heart. Um Especially, you know, that main riff, it's kind of doubled on the bass a little bit, the the arpeggios of it, but it's, I don't know, it's just a great song. Um, It's hard not to say that that the whole thing about this album is like, there's no skip songs on this. (laughs) Every song is a banger, like, all the way through, Um, so it's hard to not just be like, yeah, this song fucking slaps and yo that guitar solo on every track. Because it's it, you could say the same. Oh man, Neil's drums in this one are great, just like all the other ones. Like it's hard not to just say the same thing over and over again. But this really mm-hmm. is like, if if Tom Sawyer wasn't their big hit, then Limelight would be it. Yeah, I feel that. Um, okay. Well, following that up, we have the Camera Eye, which is the. Uh, almost 11 minute song. Um, I don't have, uh, I, I think a lot to say about this one other than the fact that I think that the sort of like, um, synth parts in this for whatever reason, remind me of, um, like, like a TV or like movies. I, I don't, I don't know what it is, but the little like, like, synth part that starts the song just reminds me of I, I don't know television or or movies something like maybe it's from a movie soundtrack or or something like that but it just that when I hear the way that this song starts that's where my brain goes yeah it kind of sounds like the NBC mm-hmm. yeah yeah maybe that's it um, but yeah, what, uh, I mean, this is the longest one and uh, outside of probably YYZ, maybe the most complicated one, uh, just because of the different, uh, like sections of the song and stuff. Uh, but what do you guys, I mean, uh, we'll start with you, BZ. How do you feel about the camera eye? Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, I'm trying to think of original words that I haven't already said. Um, fun fact, when they get to the London section, if you listen closely, you can hear Getty in the background with a shitty British accent going, Oi, Gov! Um, they put little city sounds in there. 
Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's one. It's just it's kind of buried in the mix, but you just boy, God. Um, yeah, I don't know. This this is a good song. It's 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 a long one. It's it's another one of theirs. that's like ten minutes long, but it doesn't feel like it somehow. Yeah. Um, this was a cool one. Like I said, I've saw them a few times, and I saw them twice on their Time Machine tour where they played this entire album. And so I got to see this whole album live twice. Uh, and this is one that, like, I think they, I think Alex said he had to remember how to play it because they just never played it on tour. So he kind of forgot the song. Not totally forgot the song, but just kind of forgot some of the nuance of it. But, like, it was... I don't know. This one was really cool to see live, and it was just—it's—it's uh, it's weird because you wouldn't listen to this one and think that an audience would be into like a ten-minute kind of not samey, but you know, uh, it's pretty. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. Like it's—it doesn't seem like it would make the crowd keep them up for ten minutes, but it does. It's—it's—it's it's, it's a fun song. Um, and Getty says Oikov, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Uh, what do you What do you think, Sean? Um, I actually have a lot of thoughts on this one. <laughs> well, oh, okay. Um, so there are like, it's basically like two songs in one, right? We've got the London section and the New York section. I was actually going to mm-hmm. ask Beezy which. So when the song starts, is that New York or is that London? New York. Yep. New York. Okay. So I think it's really weird. I wouldn't have expected it to be that way because that's the slower of the two sections right so we get the the first section then we get the second section and then they go back to the first section and then they go back to the second section right um and the first section is the slower one um i think that's because the it's 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 kind of uh portraying new york as this I mean, he literally, it's grim-faced and forbidding is the opening lyric. It's just kind of this, there's there's a lack of life in it. It's just a, a strict rhythm. Okay. Whereas in London, it's more lively and, you know, all that stuff. And it's it's more open and, and there's more nature in the city and parks. And, you know, obviously New York has some of that too, but not as much in the 70s. Um, yeah. So that's a, a really yeah. cool, uh, so his perspective on on what New York is, is really fascinating it's interesting yeah. and it's cool and yeah so it being the late 70s early 80s obviously new york was a fucking shithole right <laughs> um, <laughs> but um like instrumentally um in that the first section the new york section there's a lot of synthesizer stuff going on um mm-hmm. but my favorite of the the three different synthesizer parts that are happening there's like the chord stacking part um then there's this low synth bass um but then there's also this uh kind of colorful synthesizer that's rhythmic in the background it's just playing the 16th notes just but it's just a chord being played or maybe it's one note i can't remember off the top of my head but they have this effect on it called a sequa which is a sequenced wah um when a lot of people think about a wah it's like a wah wah pedal like uh jimmy hendrix would use playing guitar solos Stevie Ray Vaughan used a lot pedal a lot. Um, but it's this analog effect where you, you have a pedal that um, can be on, off, or anywhere in between. And it, it changes the, uh, it's like an, an equalizer filter. Um, I mean, if it, it sounds like the word, right? What's that in onomatopoeia? Uh, wah, wah, wah. It'll make the, the instrument running through it go wah 
or owl either way mm. um you know but, it when you hear it right exactly but in this case it's not that analog pedal that's on off anywhere in between it's actually sequenced and that's where we get the sequenced wah from um mm. it's got differing levels of the wah let's say anywhere from one to twenty and on each of those 16th notes, the wah is set at a, uh, a different point in that, or in those degrees from one to 20 or zero to 20 or whatever. Um, it, it's kind of hard to explain, but if you listen to the three different synth parts, there's the one that starts at the beginning, the one that's the different notes stacking up the chord, then the synth bass hits, it's that lowest synth tone, and then you'll hear this weird kind of robotic, almost like it would be a alien transmission sound effect happening in the top, and that's the the synthesizer going through a a sequenced wah effect. Um, so yeah, the next time you listen to Camera Eye, listen out for that in the first section. Um, that's really interesting because like a, a lot of, a lot you know a lot of people now think that electronic music is. I don't want to say stagnant or pop music or whatever. It's kind of, oh, it's just all the same stuff. But a lot of the experimentation is going on in the production end of things and how they're not just, it's not just a synth. It's taking that core synth tone and taking all the knobs and tweaking the automations to make them do all kinds of, that's how you get dubstep doing stuff. And it's just all tying all these things together that you can't really do physically. That that's just That wasn't possible before you had computers doing all this stuff. And that's exactly. interesting to hear that they were doing things like that back in the 80s. Um, yeah, yeah. That sounds yeah, like they, it must have been probably really complicated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, Pink Floyd did that, too. Um, what um, Dark Side of the Moon, On the Run, like that, that synth part mm. that's going through the entire mm. track. Um, I think it was a sequenced set of notes, so as opposed to a sequenced effect. Um they sequenced this like 16 note pattern or eight note pattern or whatever it was. And then uh, there's, there's footage of, um, I think it was Roger who was doing it in the studio, sitting down at the synthesizer, you know, um, he's got that, that sequence of notes playing, but he's turning the knobs and they're recording that to tape. They're not recording somebody sitting there playing those notes over and over again. That's, that's static. The, the performance is Roger sitting at the synthesizer playing with the knobs to get different effects post-performance of the notes. Um, so yeah, there is a, a lot of really cool stuff that people do in post with, with synthesizers. Um, my only other thought on Camera Eye is that the, the London section is just so badass. Um, there's a lot of weird, not a lot of weird metric stuff, but there is a weird metric thing that's happening. It's not in 4.4. But it feels very light and dancey. Um, it's actually alternating between three four and five four, um, which is probably outside the scope of what we want to talk about here. But for something to to groove as well as it does with weird meter, uh, that speaks a lot to what the band did compositionally and arrangement wise. But really, it speaks a lot. To what Neil can do in terms mm -hmm. of making something groove really well, even though it's in a weird time signature. But I mean, that's common for Rush. But yeah, he, this... he did that a lot with like a song's in seven, but to the person air drumming, they'd never know it. They're just 
going along with the beat, which a lot of songs now, you know, you hear them and they're in 15, 16 or 7 over 3, you know, whatever. It's like, it's yeah, ridiculous right. where'd you even get this from kind of things. And it's just there to be complicated. We were rushed at it because it sounded cool, but also they were able to ground it in something that, that anybody could kind of tap their foot to even if they had no idea what math was going on in the song itself. Yep, absolutely. Uh, there's a, a song by the Red Hot Chili Peppers called Ethiopia that's a, mm. a good example of that. It's in a weird time signature, but uh, Chad Smith plays. It, it, I don't think it's 4-4 over the top of it, but he's playing like it's 4-4 over like a 7-8. A like everybody else is playing in seven, but he's playing in four over the top of it, so it it gives it this really weird feel. Um, I point that song out specifically because I don't think it's the most well done example of that. It's not it's not one of those ones where you listen to it and you just think it's a normal song, um, like you would in in this case. That one actually like feels like it's off balance a little bit, so. That, that's why I point that one out. It's a, an example of it not necessarily being as um, easy to listen to as some other examples. But yeah, uh, that, yeah, that's all I've got on this one. Cool, cool. Um, well, we'll move on to my favorite track on the album, uh, Witch Hunt. Um, I think that this song just fucking rules uh like i love that it kind of starts off with like the sort of voices in the background like uh just like it's all inaudible so you can't really hear what it is that they're saying but you can hear the voices and the synth that just kind of like rises and rises and rises uh and the guitar in the song just fucking rules i i don't know i love witch hunt i i this might actually be my favorite rush song um I couldn't tell you why, but I just, I, I really do love this song. It's got a different character to it. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's definitely one of my favorite rush songs too. It's my favorite on the album and it's one of my favorites to have seen them do live. There's something in the, the chorus where the, the hard rock kind of fades out and you just get these big chords behind the thing. It's just so epic. And just seeing that one live with, with the lights they were doing at that particular tour and all that like it's hard not to just get goosebumps with how big it sounds um and i think the the lyrics are particularly uh growingly uh, relevant as time goes on <laughs> i would say i'll just leave it at that yeah uh i think that, uh one thing obviously i think it, it i'm the horror guy or whatever but i think that like this song has like a a really like sort of like dark undercurrent to it like i love uh it's at about like the three and a half minute mark but there's this one little like like synth sting that sounds like it's straight from a horror movie that like i just i adore and like i didn't even think about this but you're right like this song is just so big like it it is epic like it, it is just like I, I don't know. Like it's it's big. Yeah. Um Yeah. Uh then we get to Vital Signs, last song on the album. 
Um, I actually don't have much to say on this one because I think this might actually be my least favorite song on the album. Um, not to say that it's bad, but it's just one that like after I think after Witch Hunt, it like I just I'm like this is a come down track. Like this is the this is the perfect way to end, end the album uh, for me. I don't know. Um, yeah, it feels more like a tag than. Um... You know, everything else is so big and epic throughout the album, and then you've got this uh, in my in my notes here. I, I think of this as like a punk reggae track. It, it's like a love note to, to the police. I mean... Yeah, it busy. sounds like the police. Yeah, exactly. Like, even the guitar tone. Like, I've, I've always kind of thought that Alex and uh, Andy Summers... Well, Alex can you has a guitar tone that he uses sometimes. It sounds very similar to Andy Summers, and, I mean, it is in your face in this track. I mean, this sounds like a love note to the police. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely, there's interviews of them in the studio and, and they're talking about, uh, and even on the album before on permanent waves where they were talking about police as one of the bands that was up and coming that they really, they had been listening to a lot and they were really digging at the time. Um, so you can definitely hear a lot of that reggae. Um, th- this is without a doubt, one of my favorite songs on the album too. It's, it's, I, it never fails to when I start the song and you hear that, I'm not going to sing it, but you hear that intro synth that just carries all the way through mm-hmm. that little, that kind of staggered, oh, like the, like warbly sort of like, like, uh, it's, it's so good. And it, it just keeps that pulse going all the way through that slowly builds. And then it kind of drops out and there's a great Getty solo toward the end of the song. Um, and again, maybe I'm a little biased because seeing this one live is just so epic. Like they had this this lighting thing that like as that song is ending, it just is like lowering down and over the stage and oh, so good. But uh, it's, it's interesting to say you guys say this is, you know, not not the uh, not a bad song, but like a, one of the one of your least favorite on the albums. Oh, I definitely love this song. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just like, it's a tag. I mean, after everything else is so big and epic and this is, uh, that's, that's just interesting. Cause I find this one to be epic too. (laughs) Just with, with the sound. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, This is one I crank up. So, Oh, it's a good one, man. I mean, it's got that. It rocks. It, it really, really rocks for sure. I guess epic might not be the right way to describe it. I, I definitely hear what you're saying though. Yeah. It, it feels wrong now that you mention it to say that it's to refer to everything else as epic and then not say that this is too it's also kind of especially as it gets to the back half of the song it gets as it's coming to a close it almost feels like like they just ran a race and they're finishing strong but every every drum hit even though they're not coming as fast it's just heavy like he's just hitting the thing and so i don't know I get what you're saying. How it, it, it definitely has a feeling of the ending for the album. It's a great closeout song, um, mm-hmm. and it really kind of feels like they're just throwing it all at you at the end. There, not in terms of speed and not in terms of complexity, but just whatever's left in the tank, they're gonna put it there. Um, but yeah, I'll, some, there there are times where it's hard for me to just listen to one song on this album. But this is one that I'll go to and just listen to this one sometimes, just because I'm I, for some reason I'll get that synth stuck in my head and I have to listen to the song. 
Yeah, I think I think what you're saying there about like how it feels like the whole rate, like the whole album is just like a sprint. And then this is like nearing the end. I think that's that's probably what I mean to say. Like, it's not that like I, I don't like the song because I do like the song a lot, but it just it. It feels like it is like that, that the ending, like it, to me, it feels almost like it's like it's slowing to that like finish line so to speak hmm. but i don't know um let's i guess uh get to the final thoughts uh and we'll give rating um what well, how do you, how do you guys want to do the rating we'll just do uh uh how many y's out of z <laughs> how many y's out of z uh you, that's actually good i like that um i'll start I'm going to give this uh, nine out of 10 Zs, nine (laughs) Ys out of 10 or yeah, I don't know how to say nine nine Ys out of Z. Yeah. Nine Ys out of Z. There we go. Uh, I think that this album is very close to perfect. Um, There are a few things that I don't know that like particularly work for me just because I'm, I am me and I find, you know, critical aspects in everything. Um, But like I, this, this album just fucking rocks, man. From beginning to end, it's like, it's, I, I said it in the, the sort of intro to the album itself. It's one of the best albums of the eighties, like probably top five, I would say. Um, And it's, it's one of the greatest rock albums of all time. Like it, this album from front to back, is just, I mean, it's fucking awesome. Uh, yeah. Nine out of ten Zeds. Uh, or whatever. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> my brain is fried. <laughs> uh, but we'll, uh, we'll kick it to you, Mr. Beezy. I, this is not my favorite Rush album. Um, that would probably be uh, Permanent, or not Permanent Waves, uh, Power Windows. But um, it's hard not to, like, for me, this is just, this is a perfect album. Like, this, there's no tracks on here that I skip. There's nothing on here where I'm like, oh, I guess I'll listen to whatever. It's, every song is a banger. And it's like, so many of these songs have just become staples for the band. And there's a reason a lot of people feel this is the peak. For Rush, I don't, I personally really don't feel like Rush ever peaked. I think they morphed and changed and they were there the quality was there all the way through um but there's a lot of people that this is like the end cap to the early days of rush and it's the beginning of the next wave of rush that they would go in through the 80s and a lot of the albums in both of those categories kind of divide some fans some fans are more into the 80s some fans are more into the 70s stuff and all that but everybody loves moving pictures because it's just a damn good album um, and so I think I've just got to land on, uh, 10 Y's out of Z, whatever I set this thing up at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, what about you, Sean? Um, yeah. So like as a, looking at it as its own piece, like just moving pictures as a whole, like it, it's produced well it's mixed well the the writing is awesome um 
you know, the way all the tracks fit together is awesome. Um, like, I, I don't like giving tens to things, um, but I mean, I, I have to give it a 10. Um, like every, everybody's performance on the album is awesome. The stuff they did in post is awesome. Um, it, it is one of those quintessential rock albums. If, if I have to give somebody a stack of albums to listen to, to start getting into rock or what do you think Sean, what do you think are, are the rock albums that I have to listen to if I'm going to say that I've dived into to rock music? Um, I mean, this is one of them. I mean, it's it, it's kind of a, a perfect rock album. Yeah, I I am pretty pretty much in agreement with the two of you. Um but uh, yeah, so that was 1981's Moving Pictures by Rush. Uh, I want to give a big thank you to Sean for being here. Uh, Sean is one of my oldest and uh, closest friends, um, and uh, I'm very glad that he could join us for this. Thanks for um, having me. Yeah, yeah, of sure. course. Uh, so usually this time, or uh, usually around this time, we... Um, shout out uh social medias and and stuff to check us out is there anything that you want to want to shout out uh check out the royal turns yeah yeah <laughs> uh what's the name of that song again a little more a little more uh, you sent that to me uh a while back and i like that song it's very uh fleetwood mac inspired i think um, yeah our uh singer and songwriter summer um Fleetwood Mac is, I, I don't want to speak for her, but I'm pretty sure that's her favorite band of all time. Uh, she's very deeply influenced by uh, Fleetwood Mac, so she would take that as a compliment. Very cool. Yeah, uh, it's a good song. Everyone should definitely go check that out. It's on Spotify. Is it on like a uh, Apple Music? Do you know? I believe it is on Apple Music. Um, I could be wrong, but yeah, yeah. I, I think it is cool cool well yeah go check uh check that out a uh, very good song um sean uh produced that one very good stuff um well for us uh as always you can find us on social media for all things culture about hunting pixels or no not hunting pixels i need to change this in the outline uh, Culture Bop Selects and the Culture Bop family of content, which includes Hunting Pixels, by the way. Uh, but uh, Culture Bop is available on Twitter at Culture underscore Bop, on Instagram at Culture underscore Bop, and on the YouTubes. Just search Culture Bop. Um, I am available on Twitter at Bebopman182, on Instagram at Bebopman... Oh, sorry. On Twitter at the Bebopman182. I am on Instagram at Bebopman182, and on Twitch... Uh, I'll eventually get back over there. Um, the underscore Bebop Man. And then Mr. Gilbeezy, he only has one. It's his Instagram. It's Gilbeezy Skit. And that's uh, G-I-L-B-E-E-Z-Y-S-K-I-T. And finally, if you're looking to support the podcast or any of the endeavors that we're undertaking as Culture Bop, then go to patreon.com slash culture bop and toss us a pledge. We're offering some very cool perks, such as being able to get your uh, questions and comments read on the air, as well as, uh, you know, 
it's three days early access for the uh, for the podcast. Two days early access for the videos. Um, there are exclusive podcasts for uh, certain levels. All kinds of stuff. Um, and yeah, so that's that's close to it. Um, the only thing I wanted to do is uh, next week. Um, so Gilbeasy brought this up uh, to me. Uh, and I think it's actually a very good idea that I had not even remotely considered before. But um, uh, in case you wanted to follow along with us, uh, we should probably tell you guys what the uh, the next episode is going to be. So next week, we will be going over the 1978 classic proto slasher, uh, my favorite horror movie of all time, Halloween. Um, so we'll be, uh, we'll be getting into that next week. So if you want to kind of follow along with us, get brushed up on your, uh, your 1978 Halloween, uh, cause that's where we're going to get in the, uh, holiday spirit, so to speak. Um, but yeah, that's going to do it for us over here. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, be sure to do the whole, you know, thing that everyone tells you to do like subscribe, all that garbage. Um, but that's it. That is the end of the show. Thank you so much. We will catch you next week. And until then, goodbye. <laughs>